before we dive in, thank you for all the incredible feedback on the last episode with international best-selling author William Paul Young. Some of my dear friends encouraged me to write up all the messages and emails that I got in response to that interview because it was overwhelming. A couple of type pages later, I'm blown away. It's been an amazing thing to reflect on. There was such resonance with Paul's heart, especially on the topic of fear and future tripping, and how it's robbing us of the beauty of everyday moments that are such a gift. More great news is that the wonderful people at Christian Art Media and Kumbooks are now partnering with us to do giveaways of books, CDs and DVDs. If you want to win, please rate this podcast on iTunes and leave your thoughts or comments there on our Facebook and Instagram accounts. I believe so strongly in the power of these conversations and their ability to inspire us all in our beautiful pursuit of God. I'd like to invite you to sponsor an episode if that's something you'd like to do. There are various options available, so drop me a mail and we can chat. Alternatively, if you have a book or a product or a part of an organization that will resonate with the values of this audience, maybe consider advertising with us. We'd love to feature you on an episode or on the website. You can email me for pricing and more details. And please keep those suggestions coming for future interviews. I've loved your Facebook comments on this. This is The Beautiful Pursuit, and I'm your host, Antoinette MacDonald. It is so wonderful to share this episode with you. I spoke to Charlotte-based singer and platinum-selling songwriter John Mark McMillan just after he released his sixth album and was coming off a 35-city tour in the USA. Many of you are familiar with his name, especially after he wrote the song How He Loves, and everyone from Kim Walker and Jesus Culture to the David Crowder Band and Flyleaf covered the song. Years later, churches around the globe are still singing that song week after week. We were both a little croaky at the time of this interview, one of us with summer flu and the other with winter flu. This interview was such a treat though, and I was impacted by John Mark's incredible depth and tenderness his vulnerability and profound grasp on the humanity of Jesus and how that affects our humanity. I loved his thoughts on friendship and seeking out relationships with people who aren't like us. There's a potent segment of this interview on vulnerability too, and if you're a songwriter or a worship leader, you'll be challenged to hear him speak about his writing processes, honesty in worship music, and the song story behind how he loves. We kicked off this interview by chatting about North Carolina, where John Mark McMillan lives with his wife, Sarah, and their three children. I asked him what he loves about living there. Mostly I love the people. My family is here. My wife, uh, her family is here. She's from Georgia originally, but her whole family has slowly moved to North Carolina. So I, I love uh, being around my family. And with my job, you know, it's really great having family nearby, you know, because I've got three kids and I travel a lot, so... We sort of depend on the family for that. But other than that, North Carolina is really special. Like, um, There's really great music that comes out of North Carolina. North, Car- North Carolina is very green. We have lots of trees. And we got a little bit of everything in a small, you know, we can go to the coast in a few hours and we can be in the mountains in a couple of hours. So, yeah, I- I've been here my whole life. So I'm just very familiar with North Carolina. And it's just, it's yeah. kind of just home. So how old are your children? How do you do a... 35 city tour with a little family I mean how do they cope my kids are nine six and five that's where the family comes in so we have a lot of help you know and we bounce back and forth between do we split a bunch of dates up and spread them throughout the year you know where it's sort of a constant challenge or do we just 
bite it off in one chunk, one big challenge, you know. So this fall, we sort of um, decided to just go for it and knock out, you know, 36 dates in, you know, a couple of months. Um, yeah, but family helps out a lot. We also, we split the tour up into three legs, so I'd come home for a week or so in between each leg, and then I would fly Sarah and one of the kids out to, um, they each got a, a, on a day off, so like, Jude came with us to New York, so he and, he and Sarah met us in New York, and then Moses met us in California near San Diego, and then Louisa met us in Texas, um, in Dallas and Austin, and so, you know, give them something to look Beautiful. forward to, and, you know. Yeah. What do you love about touring like that? I love touring. Like, it's an adventure, and that thing in me that desires adventure, and you you have this feeling with your, you know, friends that we're conquering something, you know? Like, we've Man. conquered the United States. We've made it from one coast to the other, and I don't know. There's still something in me that that loves that, you know? And I would be really sad if that ever came to an end, you know? And the, and the camaraderie, so even all the, like, um, weird stuff, you got to deal with drama, because people are people, and, like, literally, no matter, um, you know, who you're, who you're working with, um, there's going to be issues. Stuff. But at the same time, there's, like, there's this really sweet and incredible camaraderie that comes with having worked through those type of things, and then... Some of our best stories are actually like the worst things that happen to us on the road often become the things we like to talk about the most. Wow. Do you feel a sense of responsibility to lead the guys that you're on tour with? I think early on, I felt like growing up in church, I was like, I felt like I had to, if I was going to lead a team, yeah. I had to like be everybody's spiritual leader, you know? And, mm. and that kind of backfired, honestly. It, and I don't know where that idea came from that, like, I have to be anybody's sort of spiritual guide, you know. And, mm. and I think at a point, like, it, um, it kind of gave me a little bit of anxiety or, um, you know, I kind of had a panic, <laughs> panic attack. You know, and I realized one day, it's like, I don't, have to, I don't have to be these guys, like, leader, you know. I just have to be their friend. And obviously, I'm the boss, so I have to get things done and... There are certain things, you know, like, you know, certain things guys just can't do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, but, I, but I, I think things got way better for us when I decided, like, okay, these guys are my brothers, and we're working together for a common good, and I'm not their, um, I'm not their leader. It's interesting what you're saying um, about the dynamics of friendship and leadership and how tricky that space can sometimes be. Um, you've made me think, I mean, I wonder how many relationships, especially in a faith-based environment, would be, would be stronger if people were committed to real friendship first. I know. And I wonder where that comes from, that you feel like there's a sense of importance in being, I don't know. I know Paul talks about there, you know, 10,000 guides, but only a handful of like fathers, you know, and, um, mm -hmm. And like, what's the difference in a guy and a dad and a guy that's the, the dad has to wipe your butt. You know what I mean? When you're a baby, the dad, like the dad can't walk away from you when you become inconvenient, you know? And so I, I feel like there's a, 
you know, I, I do feel like there is something to that. It's being a friend, being um, a part of some, a part of somebody's story, and not just, and not, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Without an agenda. Hey? Without an agenda, yeah, yeah. Who who are those people in your life? Those friends who are almost like fathers. Well, I mean, my actual dad has become uh, one of my closest friends. Um. You know, and he's really great. He's the pastor of the church, but I love it. We can sit down and I can just tell him things, you know, like, <laughs> like, Dad, I don't know if I believe this part of the Bible today. Like, you would have, most people would have a hard time sitting down with their pastor and saying that, but we're friends. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, we'll just have this deep conversation about, like, whatever I'm going through at the moment, you know. Um, you know so my dad is definitely one of those guys. I've got a good friend named, you know, Eric Hurchin. Um, he does all my design, if you've seen. He's probably designed almost anything you've seen by me. And he's been <clears throat> part of the videos as well a little bit. And um, I got another friend named Andy Squires. I got another friend in um, in Kentucky named Adam Russell. You know, so these guys aren't all, like, famous or anything. Um, but they're just... And another friend named Ray Hollenbach. And <clears throat> so, honestly, a lot of my spiritual life comes from our text thread. We have these monster text threads, and we'll just talk about the most random sort of things, and you know, it's just a real safe place. Like, there's sort of zero kind of, um, you, you don't feel any, um, I mean, judgment, you know, for sure. Mm. But there's no, but, we're, but it's cool because we're friends. Because sometimes as a leader, you feel like you have to, and this was one of my problems, is I felt like as a leader, and I understand this too, as a leader, sometimes you feel like you can't um, share your whole self with the people you're leading. But at the same time, that also creates a little bit of a division between you and them. And, and that's not, I'm not even saying that's bad, but there is just something really great about not having that in between you and the people, you know, that you're learning from. I mean, I have, I go to church, I have, my, like I said, my dad is a pastor. You know, but I feel like a lot of my spiritual development comes through conversations with friends. I love that. I can so relate. I, I feel so grateful for this thing called friendship and it's outworking in my own life. Um, I think friendship was totally one of God's genius ideas. But the deep friendships that you're referring to, the, I mean, those take time. They don't happen overnight. What is your secret to building these relationships and making space and priority for them in your own life? I don't know the secret. I, I feel really blessed. But I do think um, a, a couple things, though, is I think, first of all, I think um, a, a lot of my close friends I didn't like at first <laughs> when I first met them. For real, I know that's so weird. Not like I didn't like them for a long term, but like my initial reaction to them as a person was not attraction. You know, I think my uh, my buddy Eric, my buddy Eric is probably my best friend, and um, you know, and the first time I met him, he had come to interview me for a magazine he was working with at the time, but I didn't know that, and we were doing a show, and I was frustrated, and he walked in, and I was like, "Why is this guy just walking into the venue?" And I think I probably walked in the back to escort him out. <laughs> Who is this guy? I think he is, and and then you know I'm. I met him and realized he was the magazine guy and we ended up hitting it off and we, you know, became really, really good friends. They ended up moving to town. 
Then my buddy Andy, I remember he was, I thought he was just so intense when we were younger. He was so intense, he kind of intimidated me. And, but I didn't know him. So I think, number one, it's like, I think, I think it's really important that we open up ourselves to people who are not like us. Who are not like us. I think we have the most to learn from the people who are different than, than us. Though I actually, I think we've become very similar over time. We've sort of grown in similarities and we're all, you know, white men. When we, when we first met, though, I, I didn't feel like we had a lot in common necessarily. But we've all become really good friends. So I think, number one, I think opening yourself up to people who are different than you is huge. Because because the Lord has a lot to offer you through people who are unlike you. I think my second thought is that you, and this is never easy. In fact, it's always dangerous. It's always very dangerous. And people don't do it a lot. But you have to be willing to open up yourself and expose yourself to other people. There is only one way to do that and that's um, a dangerous way because anyone you open yourself up to has the opportunity to hurt you and uh, and you know eventually somebody will hurt you someone you open up yourself to will hurt you um, just because it's life right but I think people tend to um, shy away from that especially if you get hurt a few times I think that's been a big part but it's been over time you know a lot of these guys that I'm taught them thinking about I've known for well over 10 years, and they're people I've opened my whole self up to, you know, for better or worse, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's the secret, but being being willing to connect with people who are different than you and being willing to uh, become vulnerable. It's really powerful being willing to build with and open yourself up to those who aren't like you and to live vulnerably. Vulnerability and authenticity feel like the buzzwords of, of our generation since Brene Brown released her incredible TED talk on shame and vulnerability. What does vulnerable mean to you? Vulnerable, I think it means, I, I, I'd say vulnerable means um, being honest. I think I, I get, it can mean a, it can mean a number of different things. I mean, I think it means allowing allowing yourself to be. I think it means allowing yourself to be in a compromising position, allowing yourself to be in a position where you have the potential to be hurt. But all adventures happen in that place, right? All adventure happens in the place of vulnerability. I mean, I think all adventures require um, chaos. I think I think that's what vulnerability does. It opens you up to the the chaos, you know. It's like we need a certain amount of order and a certain amount of chaos to balance our lives, you know. If you have too much order, you'll go insane because your life is boring and meaningless, you know. If you have too much chaos, you just die because <laughs> you can't live in ca in utter chaos, you know. How do you see vulnerability in your walk of faith with Jesus? I mean. Do you think it's possible to live a life of faith in Jesus without vulnerability? You can't because the very nature of the teaching of Jesus is ultimate vulnerability. Ultimate vulnerability. You know, Jesus says, you know that you're children of God when you love your enemies. Loving your enemies is a sign that you're children of God. You know, it's in Matthew 5, Right? So loving your enemies by nature is probably the ultimate vulnerability, is wishing them well and meaning well. And Jesus, I mean, the great act that defined the life of Jesus was an ultimate act of vulnerability. He 
um, allowed himself to be um, tortured and murdered, right? And so Jesus exemplified that for us. So <clears throat> Jesus' life is the life of faith. <laughs> That's very scary, isn't it? It's very scary. But this the life we're called to live is, is not the closed off, shut down, safe life, but the life of uh, adventure and um, pain. <laughs> pain isn't avoidable. Pain isn't avoidable, but loneliness is avoidable. Now, you can try and avoid pain and end up lonely, but... And I think that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. I mean, to me, that is the most beautiful thing about Jesus, is that, uh, you know, all the other gods, right? Even, <laughs> even up until Jesus came, all the other gods, even the God of the Old Testament, until Jesus, um, they sit up in their place and they watch people you know and they play with people's lives and they watch people live and die and occasionally they'll sort of meddle in the lives right but then eventually they they pull back and and inevitably the you know the people suffer but the gods don't suffer But that's the beauty of Jesus, is that he fellowshiped with our suffering, you know, mm. as he didn't avoid it the way all the other gods. Uh, sorry, <laughs> this, this, just, this subject just touches me. No, but the way all the other gods avoided it, he became the anti-god in the sense that he made himself lower. I believe Jesus is a savior. I don't understand the mechanics of salvation and I'm not even gonna try. But I think what is often lost, at least in our sort of, from where I'm coming from, in our sort of American Christianity is, is very much an escape hatch Christianity. You pull the Jesus lever and everything is okay. But I feel like the most beautiful parts of the gospel are lost in that message. It's not that, it's not that sort of you just say the magic spell and then you're sort of teleported to the happy place when you die. But the the real beauty is, is that Jesus is with you through the whole process, through the entire process. And so in your life, in your worst moments, you, you know, <clears throat> sorry, good grief. I don't know what's going on with me today, but in your life, in your worst moments, you don't have a God who can't sympathize with Man, I don't even know why I'm going here today. This is deep. <laughs> but you can't and you you can't as a believer, you can't you can't shake your fist. You can't stand and shake your fist at God. Um because, you know, because he totally experienced what you are experiencing. You could shake your fist at any other god, but Jesus the Jesus God is the God who fellowships with you in your worst moments. And I, and I think that's the beauty. I think that's really where friends, friendships are made. You don't build friendships on the mountaintop, right? You forge them in the darkness. You <laughs>
have I've chucked all my notes and questions out of the window. So thank you for your vulnerability. I don't know. I, I think too that that's really important to me because I feel like American Christianity, especially, has um, <laughs> is in such need of that um, that understanding of Jesus. I don't think what you're describing is necessarily just exclusive to American Christianity. I think we often forget how to identify with the suffering and the pain that Jesus went through. I'm even aware, as you're speaking, of my own heart resistance and attitudes um, around suffering. I, I get uncomfortable. I mean, nobody likes suffering, right? And I want to grow in my own theology, I guess, of suffering. so much of our walk with God about how well we're doing. Um, I, I even think, you know, I like to, to write and create out of, out, of, out of the high place and not out of my pain. Um, and yet Jesus became human and part of that was going through pain. Totally. And the redemption in that is, and there's a lot of, you know, in, in writing, especially in, you know, sort of conventional worship music, you know, people are always looking for redemption. They want to lead you to redemption or they want a redemptive thing to repeat. But a lot of times, <clears throat> and maybe even more often, I think we, we can sing a, a, a song out of our pain and we don't find the redemption in the lyrics of the song. We find redemption in the fellowship <laughs> with one another. That's where I was going to be critical and I don't want to be because I, I have all the same problems, I'm sure, but if I was going to be critical of the writers of sort of modern, you know, conventional worship music, it would be that um, they've left the psalms behind, or they've left, you know, like 75% of the psalms behind, and they only take the, the happy ones, you know. Um, but the, the fellowship comes from singing about our pain sometimes. I don't know why we avoid it so much of the time. I don't know why it's so unpopular. <laughs> why we feel like we're not allowed to. Just like <laughs> a bad songwriter is still a bad songwriter, and a bad songwriter writing about their pain is not necessarily going to help anybody. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's all equal. I was fascinated. How do you get good at processing your pain? Is there such a thing? There is such a thing. I, I think there is such a thing. First of all, I, I believe in counseling. I think counseling is awesome. For one, it's like, you wouldn't try and fix your car on your own. At least I wouldn't. I don't know why we feel like we've got to try and fix ourselves. So I'm, I, I think counseling is awesome. Talking to people is awesome. Processing through other people is great. In, help, in healthy ways, you know. 
There's certain things you don't want to just say to anybody because they can't handle it, right? But you don't really get to decide whether or not you're handed pain. I think you can, you can get smart and you can sort of regulate the amount of pain that gets handed you. Or who is it who says you can, you can get smart enough to avoid stupid pain? But pain in general is not avoidable. But what you can, um, what you can do is you can, you can decide what your pain does to you. So pain can either make you hard and angry or pain can make you soft and empathetic. Like for me, I, I've experienced, I've had some rough times, you know, I, for the most part, my life has been great, you know, so I would never call my life a hard life at all. But I've had some difficult times, you know, but I, I wouldn't trade what those have done for me, you know, because I see people better now because of my, because of my hard times, because of the things, the few little things that I've suffered, I see people better. And, and I think that is kind of, that might be the most important work of transformation that Jesus does in your life is teaches you how to see people. How do you, how do you process pain well? I think you, you learn to allow your pain to teach you how to see people, how to see people better. When did it happen that you gave yourself to writing so vulnerably? I don't, I don't know when that happened. I, when I was younger, I used to sit up late and, and write. And I, I remember there was a time in my life when, looking back, it seems so silly, but, you know, there's some girl and it didn't work out and I was depressed. And so I wasn't sleeping very well, so I would stay up late, sit out on the porch and play music and write songs. That's probably when it started. When I really started, I realized that this is a really great way to process. It's a combination for me. I mean, it's also sort of become the work of my life, so I really want to write all the songs I have before I die. <laughs> I'm driven in a way, too, so it, it is processing, but there's just something in me that, like, I'm not writing for the next record. I'm not writing uh, to land anything in any specific way necessarily I mean maybe occasionally I will I have a friend comes over wants to write a worship song I'm like okay well, let's try that you know but for the most part I'm just writing I'm just sort of processing my life and the way I see things you know but it's sort of become my work I I have this dream that one day I could write a song that would last like the next hundred years or something and I don't know why that matters but uh, it's not I mean once I'm dead I don't think I'm gonna care about fame or money but there is something really exciting about thinking about, you know, sowing in or cultivating the future in my grandkids, you know, what, what songs are they going to sing? That would be real exciting to have something to say about that, have a voice in the way my great-grandchildren process the world and God and love and stuff. It's sort of a combination of those two things, processing and projecting. <laughs> in our time, who do you think's done that, you know, written songs that echo for generations, songs that might be around for a long, long time after they're penned? It's really hard to say. I think time time will tell. I mean, songs like, I think of songs like What a Wonderful World. Uh, I don't think that song will ever go away. There's probably a couple of Beatles songs like Yesterday. Yeah, I wondered, I was like, are people gonna, you know, when people in, in 100 years look back, 200 years look back on, you know, our world, 
Are they going to remember Kanye or Rihanna? Are they going to remember, you know, Justin Bieber? I'm not saying they won't. I just don't know. Or will they remember, are they going to remember the Beatles and Bob Dylan? I don't know. They're going to remember Stevie Wonder. They're going to remember. <laughs> or will they remember John Mark Macmillan with that song, Oh How He Loves? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they'll remember that or not. You know, that song of yours, Oh How He Loves, it really is like an anthem. I've been immersing myself in every video I could find online with your name on it. <laughs> uh -oh. And so obviously I've read and watched you speak about the story behind that song and how you came to write it. And, and for those who don't know, I mean, you wrote that out of deep pain. And then you sing it for 10 years or more in your own community and suddenly Kim Walker of Jesus Culture sings it one night and it explodes all over the world, pops up and looks like it's never going down again. And I was thinking it's weird sometimes how God works in our lives and in our stories, right? No, it's super weird. I, I have no idea why that song became what it is. I wouldn't have imagined it. I think... When, when it was sort of about to happen, I saw it. I was like, oh, man, this song is like probably going to be something. I was asked to play at a pretty big event about 10 years ago. And, I, and it just the song just sort of fit right with what, with what was going on at the time. But I, I never imagined, though, that it would, people would still be singing it today. I never imagined that I would want to sing it today. By the time it became popular in 2008, I'd sang it for years and I was kind of done. <laughs> I don't mean done because it's not a good song, just for five years or something, you just, you're ready to move on. So, yeah, so it is really interesting. I was at this huge worship event recently and they started singing How He Loves, your song. And, and knowing this interview was coming up, I sort of just opened my eyes and had a good look around and got quite caught up watching people lose themselves in that song and in the encounter it opens up it's like you've given people this roar of the father's heart over their lives watching people sing with all their hearts he is jealous for me it's something special here and i know the song story is actually heart sore and born out of out of a lot of pain right yeah yeah i I wrote it after a friend of mine passed away, so I, it was sort of, like I said earlier, you know, I was depressed, I couldn't sleep, and so I'd write. So my friend died in a car accident. I was, you know, eight hours away in um, Florida when it happened, and um, so I got the call and, you know, just was devastated and I couldn't sleep. So <clears throat> I was going through um, my journal that night. Um, because I, I keep like massive amounts of notes. I mean, I just have massive amounts of notes. And I was just going through, and I think I came across that, the first part of the first verse of that song. And um, that's all it was, you know? And I actually think I had played him that line, you know? Um, I'd actually played him that line, and it's probably why, it was probably kind of new. And that's why I sort of kind of came across it as maybe on the last page that I'd written on or something. And I saw it and I thought, I want to write the rest of this song um, in sort of his, uh, from his point of view, you know. So the song is actually from the point of view 
of someone who's dying, you know. But, of course, you don't advertise that in the song because it's way too heavy. Oh, man. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's so strange how God works here. Out of death is this song that's just brimming with life. Many people who have lost someone have gravitated towards that song not knowing. That is really amazing. Is around the world meeting people who have, you know, been able to process their pain with my words. I hate to use the word honor. I feel like that word's been a little overused, you know, but it is. It is really something special to know that other people have been able to process their pain through something I created. It's really special. in your own local church? I usually, I mean, I might once or twice a year get up and do a song. Um, not because I don't enjoy it, but I really like taking my family to church. And I, I like being with my family and, you know, standing with them and, you know, and I like supporting, um, you know, off the stage, you know, when I, when I can. Yeah, but I will sing sometimes, and I, I, I preach a lot more than I sing. So recently we've put together more of a teaching team, you know, so I'll probably, once every two months, I'll, you know, be a teacher. I'm not on staff or anything. It's, it's my local church, and, you know, I'm, I'm in some sort of leadership there, but it's not any sort of um, position or anything like that. And the worship team there, I mean, how involved are you, and what's the culture like? We have really, we have a really great worship team. So Andy Squires is actually our worship pastor. If you've heard his music, it's, it's just incredible. Um, you know, and so yeah, I, I try and encourage them. <laughs> you know, and talk to them. I think I mostly I try and be their friends. I heard you on one of my favorite podcasts, um, Stephen Roach's Makers and Mystics, and you were speaking about worship and honesty and how real worship doesn't flow from obligation. Can you chat about that with me? Yeah, sure. I love to. I love to. Well, I think I think there are sort of how should I say this? In life there are things that um there in life there are things that keep you alive and then there are things that make staying alive worth doing, right? And so in life there are things that keep you alive and then there are things that make being alive a thing worth doing. So to me, worship sort of by nature is the second of those two things. You know, by nature, worship is not the thing that keeps you alive. Worship is the thing, is the reason you stay alive. But it gets so turned around, you know, in the way we think. All of a sudden, worship songs become a utility, a means to an end. And the thing is, a worship song can be a very powerful thing, it's not saying that a worship song cannot be a means to an end, but 
if it becomes only a means to an end, you sort of defeat the purpose. So the word worship means vehicle within which you uh, assign worth or value, right? And so, like, the things that are the most precious to us are generally, like, really, really impractical things. Like our children, they're just insanely impractical. Like, they serve no practical function whatsoever. You know, I mean, they can be made to serve some practical functions, but for the most part, they're just incredibly precious, inconvenient, (laughs) beautiful They're just incredibly precious, inconvenient, beautiful things. Beautiful inconveniences, you know? But, but you know, but all the greatest things in life are, are that. They're, they're not convenient. They don't necessarily help you stay alive. They're the things that give meaning to the life you live. Marriage is the same way. Like, my wife is a great cook, and she does really great stuff for me like that. But, you know, if I, <coughs> if I approach her as only the person who cooks for me and washes my clothes, all of a sudden she's not going to even do those things. You know what I mean? Like, if I approach her from a totally utilitarian standpoint, then even the her function is not going to work <laughs> very well. You know, she will refuse to function, you know, if I approach her from that aspect, right? You know, and I feel like we're, we get a little bit, we get a little bit in dangerous territory with worship music when it becomes you know, simply utility, because then it exists to prop up these ideas or build a platform or all these things, which may or may not be good things. But I don't know, for me, I, if I, if I start to, if I don't hear something honest in a song, I just naturally tap out. And so I guess that's my point. If I feel like a song is dishonest, no matter how true the song is from, you know, technically, no matter how true the song is, if I don't feel honesty, like i my heart can't listen to that song because I don't care. <laughs> so you can be totally correct about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who God the Father is and who the Holy Spirit is and what the church is supposed to do. And you can be totally accurate in all that, you know, but I, but if I don't feel like you mean it, then I just don't care. And that's, that's sort of the danger that we... Um, the danger is that insincerity breeds um, resentment. Insincerity breeds resentment, and I think that being insincere is more dangerous than being incorrect. And I think the church is way too interested in how correct they are in their statements in worship, and not as interested as in not as interested in the sincerity of the worship as I I personally think they should be, if that makes sense. And obviously, I mean, when I say the church, it's really terrible to say anything about the church. Because we're talking about millions of people across sure. nations who all have <coughs> very different worshipful practices, but and sort of my sort of small, you know, world of sort of American corporate worship music, you know, that would sort of be my critique. But also, I think I think honesty is really important for a number of reasons. I think that it's really important to disagree, you know, and say things that. Um, people disagree with and not just to create drama but because we sort of find the truth through our disagreements we sort of find the truth and the tension between my point of view and your point of view so for instance um i remember i was going to start preaching a little more at church so i went to buy a new bible i don't know if i talked about this on steven's podcast 
Yeah, you did. You did, but cool. But I went to I went to go buy a new Bible, and I thought I'm gonna buy a new translation because I've become too accustomed to the one I was using, and I want to read it with new eyes, right? So um, I bought a new translation. I picked out the one that I wanted, and I really wanted the Bible to look like a book I would carry with me, not because I'm like care if anyone sees they have a Bible, but I just want it, I want it to be part of my life. So I want it to look like my life, you know. I don't want it to look like a sorcery book on the airplane when I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, a, it's like, oh, it's part of my life, you know. I want it to be like part of my life. So I found one that looked like part of my life and it's like, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to buy another one. I'm going to buy another Bible that has a translation that is not my favorite because I want the balance I want to be able to have the balance between the two. Okay, so, but I also wanted it to look like my life. And here's what was really, really interesting. The Bible that I, the translation I wanted, it was really easy to find in the, with that looked the way I wanted it to look. The other translations were almost impossible to find, at least at the bookstore. And I realized something, is that um, they were marketing different translations of the Bible to different people, right? Because... People generally, um, there's a term for it. People gravitate towards things that tend to agree with their point of view. So we tend to gravitate towards translations of the Bible that tell us what we, more or less what we um, want it to say. You know, I think they all still say love your enemies and none of us like that. But, you know, but we do gravitate more towards the, towards the translations that, you know, are more in line with what we want them to say, right? And uh, and it became painly, painfully obvious to me that different age groups and different demographics of people uh, revolve. You know, they um, they gravitate towards different translations because it's the way they see the world, right? And so the book companies are just being good capitalist companies, and they're selling them the books that look and sound like what they want, right? Okay, so the danger in that is this, is that, you know, like, different translations of the Bible can say things very, very differently, right? So, if we get stuck in the sort of echo chamber world where, you know, we only gravitate towards things that tell us, reinforce the way we already think the world is, right? Then how do we grow? How does the church grow? You know, and it's the same with worship music. If, if we continue to write songs that only make us feel comfortable and tell us what we already feel like we believe in what we already know and never challenge us, then what happens is we become a closed circle and we close ourselves off from, you know, the rest of the world, you know, and we stunt our own growth because we're never challenged. You know, we reinforce our own weaknesses and our own insecurities, you know, if we don't allow, it doesn't mean we have to agree with it all, but if we don't allow challenging songs to work their way into our lives, you know, then we just sort of reinforce, you know, um, whatever it is we already believe, right? Mm, That's hard. It's a really good challenge, though, because most of us are, let's face it, not raised to deliberately put ourselves in uncomfortable situations with the intention of growing. We often look for those who look like us and make us feel good because they like us. I love that, actually, about church. It feels like it's a beautiful place for us to grow in that space. And in the context of um, creative endeavors like writing, uh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Well, I guess what I'm saying in the context of being a writer, 
That's why I think it's important that we be honest and not that we're not afraid that the words that we write are going to be... We're, we're not afraid that everything we say is going to be completely understood. It's okay to be misunderstood as a writer, you know. But I feel like that culture in the church is, um, <laughs> is non-existent. <laughs> John Mark, do you feel lonely in that journey? I mean, if I was to describe your work to someone who'd never heard of you, I would describe you as, as a pioneer because you're taking deep, entrenched truths about life and God and things that have honestly very often become over-familiar and impotent. And then you come and you push yourself to say them differently, not for the sake of being different, but because you want those things that are sacred to remain sacred and for us not to become so at home with them that they mean almost nothing. Do you feel alone in that journey or not really? I do. No, I, I actually do feel a little lonely in that journey. You know, and mostly it comes when um, when you try to grow. You know, you try and grow what it, whatever it is that you're doing. You know, because when you open up the doors, uh, the way to open up the doors to more people is to make your whatever you're doing less specific and more general. But a lot of the potency is in the specificity, you know. Um, a lot of what, you know, makes, you know, the details, you know, m make what I'm doing exciting to me, anyway. I've done sort of the, you know, the CCM tours, and the audiences don't respond well to what we do, you know. And then it's very difficult to get a secular artist to take us out on the road because the How We Love song is so huge. They just look me up and they find that song. And, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with it, you know, and I mean, that's, that's a question for another day. That's why people are so offended by worship music. So that's been really difficult. It's trying to forge our own path and trying to find a home with, with an audience who, uh, you know, connects to our music. And there are a lot of people who do, but it's just been really difficult finding the avenues to pursue that. So if you do the Christian music thing, you know, they want you to do a radio. Radio wants it to sound a very specific way, and I just can't do it. <laughs> you know, I just every time I hear the radio version of the song, I'm just like, I hate this. I cannot put some, I can't put music out that I hate. I just refuse. Um, <laughs> so that's been difficult, is, is finding a home. We have found um, some, um, we have made some really great friends, you know, uh, guys like Josh Gerrels, you know, who... We call it the third space, you know. We're not Christian music. We're not church music, really. But we're also, like, the secular world isn't interested in us either, you know, for the most part. So we're the third, <laughs> we're sort of the third space. And there aren't many of us, but Geralt's is doing really good, you know. Um, you know, Need to Breathe has been really kind. They, they took us out on a tour last year. It's a huge tour. That was really great, you know. So they definitely dipped their feet in some different, you know, waters, you know, and done a really, really good job, you know, sort of um, holding it together, you know. Um, but yeah, it has been lonely and it has been hard, you know. Figuring out where I belong, where we belong.
reach a non-Christian audience at all? We get a few, you know, but more than anything, like, there are so many people who believe in God and love Jesus who don't go to church. You know, so many. I would say more than not. So I would say there are more believers outside of the church than inside the church, you know. That doesn't mean from whoever's perspective that they're like super healthy or they're in the right place. I mean, though I don't know that any of us, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're all on a journey, right? Like we're all like, we're all trying to figure it out. But like, I feel like we get a lot more of those type of people. So like we, we reach a ton of believers who don't go to church. People come up to us all the time saying, like, I haven't worshiped or been to church in, you know, three, four years. And, you know, we sang with you for the first time tonight and it felt good and I don't know why I love it so much now you know and so that's been really you know great I we do get some people who aren't believers but for the most part they're some they have some sort of faith you know we get a lot of um we get a lot of post-christian people too like I people who um used to be believers who are you know don't believe in God anymore you know who still have some sort of affinity for you know, the conversation. And I mean, I think that's really great too. I, I love those people too, yeah. you know? So that's been really our sort of world, you know? But I actually believe, you know, Christian music would be bigger outside of church if we could figure it out because there are more believers outside of church than in church. I just think there's a whole group of people out there that aren't being reached, you know? You know, and, uh, and I think there's gotta be people to write songs for them too, you know? It's just, I think there hasn't been um, many examples of people who have done it successfully, you know. And so I just, I just want to encourage people that it can be done and it should be done and that it's okay, you know. Because yeah. we, <clears throat> we tend to, you know, we tend to worship success in church just like anyone else does, you know, and all of a sudden this is the best worship song because it's the most successful. It's like, yeah, this song might be anointed. It's made a lot of money to reach a lot of people, you know. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it doesn't mean that that is the model for the way everybody should worship. Something I want to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, when I say the beautiful pursuit, does that mean anything to you? I think the beautiful pursuit is living life fully, meaning living a life in pursuit of the things that give life meaning, not just keep you alive. Why have you never come to South Africa? You know, I don't, I'm not sure if we've had an invitation from South Africa. I feel like maybe at some point we have. Um, it's on my list. If I had a chance, I would definitely make it happen, though. <laughs> Do you have a favorite go-to worship leader or muso that you love? Yeah, my favorite worship leader right now is Andy Squires. He's just writing the most important songs in the faith space right now, in my, in my personal opinion. 
at least for me. Wow. Yep. And my wife, she also is my other favorite worship leader. Yeah. What makes you super happy? Uh, thinking about my family makes me happy. And as weird as it sounds, I don't, you know, nobody crucify me here, but the universe makes me very happy. You know, I, I love that life is winning. You know, I love that even in the most ridiculous, like cold black vacuum of space, like life is actually happening on earth. Like life is actually happening here. There are stars and there's power in the galaxies. And you know, like it's so easy to think that everything important happens right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just, so great and it just puts my life in perspective and it makes me so happy i think part of it too is i look up at the stars and i'm like oh it feels so good to be unimportant you know just feels so great <laughs> to look up and see that like you know in the span of eternity you know my mistakes don't matter or that like there's enough time in this world that even my worst mistakes can be twisted around and used for good you know i think uh yeah, so I, I just love it. I love traveling and seeing nature and seeing how big the universe and the world is. You know, that makes me <coughs> super, super happy. I, you know, um, talking with my friends makes me very happy. I'm an outward processor, so I love it. That's what I look forward to all week long. That brings us to the end of another episode of The Beautiful Pursuit. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. As usual, the beautiful music that you hear on this podcast, The Beautiful Pursuit, is compliments of Sean Williams' music. You can find more on Facebook, and like Sean Williams' music there. This episode's giveaway is sponsored by Kumbooks. John Mark Macmillan's first live album is a collection of well-known anthems such as Future Past and How He Loves, as well as Heart Won't Stop and King of My Heart. Live performances on the record include a cast of some of John Mark's good friends, like Kim Walker-Smith, Brian and Katie Torwelt, and his wife Sarah Macmillan. Both electric and intimate, this album captures the essence that John Mark Macmillan has become well known for at his shows. We are giving away five copies of Live at the Night Deluxe CD and DVD. All you have to do is rate this episode on iTunes and like The Beautiful Pursuit on Facebook. Until next time. <laughs>